Welcome to Coloring the Melody. I'm Nora. And I'm Darlene. And we are two female music teachers of color discussing the realities of life and aiming to break the norm in education. Our mission with this podcast is to contribute a different voice in topics such as music, education, faith, and multiculturalism. So sit back and enjoy! Hey everyone, and welcome to one of our last episodes of our second season of Coloring the Melody. We are going to wrap up our season with our guest, Jonathan Seligman. Jonathan Seligman has been teaching choir, band, ukulele, and general music for TK through 6th grade at Casillas Elementary for six years, creating a new music community from the ground up. Academically, Seligman has received his Bachelor's of Music in Music Composition and a Master of Arts in Teaching from Point Lomi Nazarene University. He has furthered his learning, being trained in ways of Faraband and being fully ORF Schulwerk certified. Salgaman is also the co-founder of the CVE Collaborative Concert, an annual event that brings students from around Chula Vista to play music together in celebration rather than competition. Salgaman's mission in all his groups is to teach beyond music literacy and discipline. While they are vital, his goal first and foremost is for students to be in tune with their musical expression. Now let's get to our episode. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Coloring the Melody. We are here today with John Seligman and if you're not familiar with who he is, he's actually on another podcast called Chaotic Harmony and so we are so excited to have him here, get to know him and just chat music education. Yes. Sure. Thank you for having me guys. Yes. All right. So we usually like to start off with a little game or a little get to know you activity with our guests. So Nora, do you want to go ahead and start that? Yes, I can start that off. So let's start off easy. So what is your favorite food to eat? Oh, gosh. Favorite food. It depends on the day. <laughs> um you know, as of as of late, I've gotten into yakisoba a lot. So that's okay. been my go-to the past two weeks. Oh. So what's yakisoba? I, I've never had that before. It is a Japanese noodle dish. Uh, it is just love in your mouth. That's pretty much what it is. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. You're going to have to recommend a few restaurants so I can go try it. Okay, yeah. It's like I mean, if you're down in San Diego... Just like I gave to Darlene, I am down to give you different options. Okay, good. Oh, I love it. Well, my my big thing right now is just hitting up all the different Mexican food places. And so um, earlier before the recording of this podcast, um, you know, I've been contacting John back and forth, back and forth. And so I was like, wait, I'm going to be in San Diego for spring break. I was like, John, you got to tell me some go-to <laughs> places. And he suggested this one place in Chula Vista, which is a couple, maybe like a couple miles south of San Diego. I forget the name now. Now my mind is blanking of the place. The now I'm disappointed. Place. Now I'm disappointed. Yeah, now I'm just, now the food was so good, the name like escaped my head. It is Tacos El Gordo. There are two places. It is the best tacos in United States. Just want to place that out there. It is the best tacos in the United States. Place it there. Fight me. I w- I will say it's pretty up there. Nora, have you have you tried that place? I forget, place I forget if I asked you. 
No, actually, when I saw it, it just reminded me of Mexico. It really did. Uh, so I can't wait to go try it. So I'm always up for any Mexican food. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. So let's go ahead and dive deep into getting to know more of who you are, John. So tell us more about who you are, what you teach, and all that fun stuff. Certainly. So uh, I'm John Seligman, as I've been already stated by you two. Uh, I was born in born raised here in San Diego um, to a first generation immigrant and a hard uh, heart caring folk musician. And I don't say that just for like accolades. It's like it kind of has built into my character. Oh, also uh, first generation Christians, which also plays a role in who I am. Um, currently teach at Casillas Elementary. I've been there for the past six years now. It's uh, in Chula Vista, just east of the 805. Um, and yeah, when I started uh, this whole music education thing, I did not expect to be uh, an elementary music teacher by any means whatsoever. Um, in fact, uh, initially I was aiming to be a ethnomusicology professor. That was my goal after leaving um, university. Uh, I was doing my, my senior year of college. I remember specifically, I was, um, juggling between a composition recital and also doing an honors project on how does Philippine music refl reflect its own culture. And then I literally had nightmares within nightmares trying to do both at the same time. So I had to drop that, but I always wanted to jump back and pursue and get a doctorate in ethnomusicology. Uh, and so my friend Patrick and I, we were both composition majors, we said, hey, why don't we go grab our teacher credential while pursuing our doctorate? And in retrospect, that's a terrible idea because that's a lot to do. Um, but I, so I, then I went through the whole teacher credential process, uh, did high school music, and then I got a call from our Chula Vista's VAPRC director, uh, Lauren Shelton, saying, hey, we have some openings down in Chula Vista. Would you be caring to, uh, to join us? And like, I'm thinking, like, I'm teaching 12th grade right now going to kindergarten really <laughs> that's uh, quite a shift um but uh you know i decided to just go for it and i jumped in and i have not regretted it by any means i do want to go eventually go back and grab uh, grab pursue my doctorate in ethnomusicology i do see that in the horizon but um i am loving what i'm doing here well thank you so much um we always love to interview our um, interviewees and just like ask them a little bit about their background because it says a lot of who they are. And uh, Darlene and I, we found out that you do have a podcast. So can you tell us more about the Chaotic Harmony podcast? Yeah, sure. Um, so the Chaotic Harmony podcast uh, is... Uh, She's going to neglect this, but it, it is the brainchild of Crystal Pridmore. Uh, she's one of the uh, music educators down in Chula Vista. She just like she met up with me, uh, also other f friends, Mark Kimer, Zoe Kumagai, saying, "Hey, we sh we should start a podcast." And pretty much what Chaotic Harmony is about it's um, us talking about the joys and struggles of music education, um, because we kind of focus on like building each other up, but also um, and building empathy for our field uh, due to actually well first off did you guys grow up in southern california i did orange county i grew up in the san francisco bay area and so what was your music education like back in elementary i know i'm the interviewee but i'm curious it kind of plays a role <laughs> plot twist we're the ones being interviewed <laughs> well i didn't have a elementary music program 
And I didn't even, uh, I wasn't even in band or, or choir in uh, junior high until high school. So yeah, that's my background. If you have for elementary, I don't really say this a lot, but I was homeschooled from kindergarten through eighth grade. So I didn't technically okay. have a quote unquote elementary music education. I had my piano lessons and singing in the church and doing music in the church there. Yeah. So, oh, that's cool. Okay. But similar to Nora, um, I mean, music education down in at least Southern California, I'm not sure about NorCal, but like it's been pretty non-existent. Um, I remember back when I was in elementary school, I had, Agreed. yeah, I had a band teacher, Mr. Sherry. He came in once every two weeks. Um, I played the flute. Um, I did not practice enough, nearly enough, but uh, I pursued a band. But also beyond that, it was really up to the general ed teachers to decide whether or not music was important or not. So my fourth grade, fifth grade teacher, Mr. Gerald Neal, he uh, thankfully brought in specialists. They had things, but they were very small. And so music education was very non-existent. And the same thing with Chula Vista. Um, for 35 years, we had no arts education. And so by the powers of Lauren Shelton. <laughs> well, it's not just her, but she did a lot of great things uh, to pull strings together, work in the Sandy Youth Symphony. And in 2016, she hired me, and in five years, she hired 90 VAPA teachers. Wow. Um, so it was a big, yeah, it was a huge shift. And so that's kind of why we started the podcast, kind of to, not just for advocacy, advocacy is always important, but also to just build, as I mentioned earlier, empathy for the field. I feel like a lot of times when we talk about music education, we talk about, oh, this is what Finney is doing. This is what Casillas is doing. But there are teachers behind that. There are people, personas, and like there are narratives of each and every one of us. And it's important for not just educators to know who they are, um, not just parents, not just admin, but everyone to know who the styles of what Casillas is being brought on this spot. It's being taught by Mr. Seligman and who is Mr. Seligman. So giving these narratives is important, but also just to build each other up. Um, something I see a lot in secondary, especially in secondary music, but like in music in general, music gets a little competitive. Um, people like, like toss a lot of accolades and whatnot, or rather should I say like principals love to show accolades by showing the rewards that uh, schools have won, going to festivals. Um, but that's not what arts is about. Um, and so something that I've co-founded is the Collaborative Concert Down in Chula Vista, where every year for the past four years, we um, have t uh, schools from all around Chula Vista perform music together. And so that's kind of in the ethos of Chula Vista. We need to build each other up. And that's kind of why we do Chaotic Harmony, to build each other up as well. I love it. I love hearing from other elementary music ed educators around the nation or on the world and actually and see like what's been done because sometimes as music teachers we kind of feel alone because usually we're the only music teacher in a site um, and it's really cool to not hear just like one or two but four different um, music educators to just have conversations on what that's like so that's so cool that you shared that story I, had, I actually didn't have an idea any idea that that was kind of the backstory behind um, getting music in the program there. Um, another um, thing about um, your podcast and like our podcast is we love ta talking stories and telling stories. So yes. in an earlier episode, I talked about, I don't even know what the context was of this, <laughs> but it was about me being in a suitcase. And so for anyone listening who's going, Darlene, what are you talking about? 
you have to you have to listen to all the other episodes to find yes. why I was talking about that. But John, you mentioned in our little email conversation that you have a story about a timpani. So I'm curious to hear more about this. Yeah. So you, I, if I recall correctly, you were in a suitcase for music history, was it? Yeah, it was for a music yeah, so theory assignment. Sim- <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So go listen to the episode, guys. I, um links in the bottom I'm sure but uh, also um, go listen to Carol Carmody uh, episode zero if you want to hear more about the, the how um, Chula Vista went from zero to 90 teachers it's a really fascinating episode with our VAPA coordinator shameless plug awesome. anyways um, uh, so how did so what happened was my second year at Point Loma Nazarene University um, there is this uh, theory uh, music theory professor Dr. Bill Clements um, as I look back at my time at Point Loma. There are like a couple of people that really stand out. Dr. Bill Clemens, Dr. Keith Peterson, a couple other people. But something that's really important about Clemens is that he was very smart, but he also knew how to how, how to have fun. <laughs> so about two or so weeks before finals, I want to say, um, Music Theory 1 was going to meet up and you know just learn stuff. And the two people, A. Powers and Scott Stevens, they were people a grade above me. They came up to me saying, hey, John, we want you to be part of this. <laughs> and the idea was we would all dress up as ninjas and attack the theory professor in the middle of class. And as what? we built this idea more and more, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as we built this idea more and more, I'm, I'm not sure why they reached out to me. I'm not sure if it's because I was Asian <laughs> or if it's because I was smaller or if it's just because we're all friends, whatnot. I know. <laughs> um, but... Uh, the idea was I would go underneath a timpani cover and then they placed a bunch of music stands around me as well. So we, I got there about 15 minutes before class started, um, got underneath the cover and I was going to wait for the keyword Toru Takemitsu, who is a, music, a Japanese theory, uh, theorist and modernist composer. Uh, and I had two friends also, Patrick and Kristen, who filmed it. So I actually do have the video, not on me, but I'll, I'll be sure to send it to you. Um, but they came in. So I was waiting for them to come in so they could film it. Anywho, I'm in that timpani uh, cover for, I don't know, 30 minutes maybe? I'm not sure how long. It felt like an eternity. And then I hear Dr. Clem say, Toto Takamitsu. I was like, was was that right? Did I hear it? <laughs> he just uses it casually uh, just because he's just that awesome. He says it again, and then I jump out. All the music stands clatter, just loud noise. And my, um, you hear this, this one girl, Kirsten, she's screaming. Oh, my gosh, what's going on? She's screaming for a long period of time. I jump out dressed in my fake ninja garb. Uh, Scott and Abe jump in also with their fake ninja garb. We gr- uh, run over. Abe grabs his pillowcase, places it over Dr. Clemens's head. We rush him out of it. We wait about a minute or so. And like you still hear Kirsten just screaming because she has no clue what's going on. Then Dr. Clemens walks back in with one of our fake ninja uh, hoods and says, "Well, just another day in music theory. Back to learning." So, <laughs> it was just some dumb fun. <laughs> that's just that's just college for you. You know, you have the mundane of waking up early in the morning to dig deep into harmonic analysis. I don't know why we had to get up that early to do that much thinking. And then you just, it's just things like this. Oh my gosh, that's wonderful. I'm like imagining these stands and then, oh my goodness, this is, what a great story. 
question for you. Do, does all music theory classes begin at like 7.30 in the morning? Is that a mandate for all? Because you said it was early in the morning. Is it all, all of them that early? Mine was, I think, I think eight ours o'clock. was at eight. eight yeah. O'clock. It's early. I do recall like dragging myself to the classroom. Like, oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. I don't know if I retained a lot. Well, yes, I did retain information, but I think I could have retained more <laughs> if I was fully awake. <laughs> Yep. Oh, and recitals fair. being in the early in the morning too. Yeah. Like why were we being asked to perform at like nine a.m., eight a.m. At least for us. I don't know about you, John. If that was your we had juries early in the morning, but recitals were usually at the evening portion. Oh yeah. really? But oof. just performing yeah. in the morning. I'm like, who's awake to even listen to me? <laughs> <laughs> no one. <laughs> oh goodness. Oh so, great. Oh. Well, thank you so much for that Tiffany story. <laughs> and you have to show uh, share with us yeah. the video for sure. Yes. Um, so just tell us about your music program and what has been different for you teaching this school year. Everything? <laughs> <laughs> I guess everything's been different. <laughs> I don't know. True. Um, there's been a lot of... I, yeah. I think the key word is pivoting. Pivot, pivot, pivot. Mm. It's been the whole thing. But um, as far as pre-COVID, um, so uh, I'm a full-time music teacher over at my school site, which I'm utterly thankful for. Um, we have about, we have three choirs, after-school choirs, and I am thankful also at the the year before COVID hit, like we had about fifth, a fifth of our school that was part of it. So it's like, uh, it was like, I hope we can build up to those numbers again. Um, but yeah, we have a, uh, three choirs. We also have a concert band that's funded by the Save the Music Foundation. Thank you, guys. Um, but what I focus on is, so I'm an ORF teacher. Uh, or, or should I say I'm ORF certified? Um, and But also I'm a nerd and also a composer as well. So like I try to implement movement, singing, and uh, technology and notation into my classes. Now, the thing is, when COVID hit, uh, again, pivot, pivot, pivot. Um, those, if I break it down, singing, movement, and um, composition, all of those were affected. Like singing, um, it works, you know, kind of in a soloistic fashion. I could have kids return back in a solo fashion or such, but we can't do group singing for obvious reasons. Um, movement, I, I, first off, are you guys... Uh, ORF certified or aware about the ORF world? Pretty, yes, no. Pretty aware of uh, aware the of it, world. but not certified. No. <laughs> you should join. Just saying. <laughs> Just saying. It revolution. It really has revolutionized how I've taught. Um, something that I've always been apprehensive about is um, movement and dance. Something that growing up that. Like maybe it's just because the stereotypes of what it means to be a quote-unquote guy is like you don't do that stuff or something. I'm not sure exactly. Um, but being in my ORF levels has really opened me up to really understanding that expression comes from the body and it's good to be to be aware of it. So like I've tried to implement that in my classes. It's been tough through distance learning, um, mainly because camera parameters, um, kids turning on their cameras to begin with. <laughs> uh, but... So that's been, you know, shafted. But with composition, I've really leaned into. That's been the thing I've really focused on, um, using Chrome Music Lab. Also um, working on, with fifth grade, this Foley Artist project. Are you aware of what Foley Artistry is? 
No. Noah, I'm um, learning so a lot from you today, John. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, so essentially, back in the day when movies went from silent films to talkies, not the snack, but you know, like... <laughs> talking films um this guy named jack foley decided that it'd be quicker to record and also cheaper to record sound effects in post-production so if you see a horse galloping uh in a film you don't have someone with a boom mic following the horse's foot uh, footsteps instead you record it in post-production um and so this is something i really wanted to do for a long time a fully artist project but having kids bring their laptops to the music classroom was always difficult. But now that everyone has their laptops in front of them, hey, let's try this out. So essentially, I give students a blank film, uh, or sorry, a film, but or like a 10 minute, 10 second video, uh, no sound whatsoever. And then we talk about what kind of sounds would you imagine hearing? Um, so the first one I had was like someone walking through the woods. We talked about descriptions of like the person. How are they walking through the woods? Is it crunchy? Is it wind? One kid says, oh, there's a T-Rex there. No, there's not. Stop it. Um, but like we talk about what kind of sounds would you imagine hearing? And so eventually we're in this quarter four, finally trying to tie it all together. Um, and it's tough because there's a lot of instructions on how to align sound up together. But... I'm kind of, I hate the, the analogy, I'm building the plane as it flies. I really don't like that analogy, but it kind of works here. Um, so I'll let you guys know at the end of the quarter how it works out, but that is the goal for this quarter, at least for fifth grade. So yeah, I've been pivoting in that regard. Yeah, same thing for me. Um, I really like that idea of dreaming up and imagining what sounds could happen in um, you know, a silent film like this, that has been an idea that's been ruminating in my head. It's just trying to find when to do it. And, you know, especially with this year, at least with me and Nora, our schedules keep changing. So, of course, that plays a factor into our lesson planning. So then I think, well, I guess I won't do this lesson because now we have to teach double the amount of classes that we usually do. Well, then. So it's things like that. And that's just the yep. nature of the year, right? And like what you said, um, being a pivot. And I think for for this year, I've personally been really challenged to broaden my perspective on what music education should be, especially for our older students. Um, oftentimes, some teachers will think, okay, I teach them all this basic music terminology on these basic concepts because I want them to be able to read solfege fluently or recognize these complicated rhythms which you can do and there's nothing wrong with that but then I think of so many of my transfer students who come in you know at third grade fourth grade and they didn't have that foundation you know in their prior years and so then what like what do they do um and so for me, for this year, I mean, I'm going to be honest, we did do a little bit of, you know, melodic and rhythmic um, learning, but a lot of this year for my older students was just creating and really redefining that being a musician isn't just, oh, I can read notes off a page, I can recognize rhythms. No, because is that, I mean, yeah, is that, that's music making, but if they're not connected to it, I feel like it's just such a surface level of that. And music making is so much more than that. You can make music through you know body percussion you can make music through um grabbing some loops together on soundtrap or band lab and do that and that has really been just an eye-opening opportunity for me because i got to really see um opportunities for my students to shine in ways that i would not have seen if i just made them do a bunch of worksheets if i just made them 
sing a bunch mm-hmm. of solfege patterns for me, which isn't bad, but it's like, oh my gosh, if I had, so choosing to do one thing is also eliminating a chance to do another thing as well. So I love hearing that you're giving your students a chance to explore and be creative in that way, John. No, what you were saying earlier, actually, there is this guy, he's in Canada, his name is Steve Giddings. Um, I've kind of connected with him on Twitter. Um, and he posts something called Hot Take Tuesdays. And it's always fascinating. Something he's really been pushing against is how do we read music? And he focuses a lot on not labeling it as this is musical notation, but this is Western classical music notation. Or sorry, Western European classical notation. Because how you read is a good way of reading, but there are other cultures that utilize different notations as well. And it's important for us not to be, to be respectful of it, but also to be more aware of it. And then not just that, but different styles of music don't need to use the, the notational st- uh, um, items that we use. For example, I, I've been focusing more, more, I'm pushing more and more when I'm teaching ukuleles with my sixth graders on tablature. And even though some music educators might look down on that, are the students creating music? Are they learning how to be creative? Are we not meeting those standards? Then why are we pushing so hard on this Western classical notation? It's a it's a hard hard mix. I don't know. Yes, and for sure, I just definitely want to add to this because um, this past year I've been studying the National Chord standards, and you know, even if you think about the art- artistic processes, performing is only twenty five percent of of music just in general but we forget that you know there's the element of creating there's an element of responding and connecting and we tend to neglect a lot the connecting part how does music bring us together and I feel like if if us as music educators we challenge ourselves so yes you know it's important for kids to understand um, how to read music we can't neglect that because we do have to introduce that but there's a balance to do that like you know you're probably only gearing maybe 10 percent of the kids I'm just like throwing a random percentage there that may want to pursue music education right but what about the other 90 you know what I mean like what about them maybe they just want to just jam out per se and learn that um learn how to read tabs or, or things like that so I don't know I just I feel like that has definitely um challenged me to mm-hmm. step back no actually to add on to that Nora I like that because I feel like when we have, I had this situation in choir, a kid was talking to me about this, like people, kids enter and think, oh, if I'm going to be taking music class, I don't really want to because I'm not going to be a musician when I grow up. But in the same sense, like you don't take math class because you become a mathematician. We're not going to become, you know, take history class because you're going to become a historian. That's not what music is all about. Yes. I always think maybe, maybe. 0.1% of my students will actually become, enter the music industry. Maybe. I don't know. But that doesn't mean that I can't touch the hearts of the rest of them through music because music is more than just a profession. Music affects the whole child. So um, I, one of my old professors, uh, Dr. Dan Nelson, I think it was him. Sorry if it's not you. Um, said that we teach kids first. We teach kids first. And music... All the theory, the the notation that comes second, but we teach kids first. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. And sometimes I feel like 
some people need to know specifically what that looks like when we say we teach kids first because it's like oh what a profound statement oh my goodness but it's like what does that really look like <laughs> you know it's like oh my goodness my heartstrings um but like for example um i'm you know in a lot of different music education circles, Facebook groups, you know, talking with other people. And I remember being in a conversation with some other educators on building a choral program. And, you know, you're, of course, you know, the ideal choral program is, you know, big numbers, but mainly even having a good sound, having a beautiful tone. And I mean, it's elementary school. And if it's a non-audition choir, you're not going to have that right away. And I remember just in this conversation, people were saying like, oh, you know, but these kids come in singing in this very pop style because that's what they hear on the radio and all that. And then one person mentioned like, yeah, so it is your job to correct that. It's your job to say, okay, that's the way you sing at home, but this is the way we sing in school. And I knew what that teacher meant. Like, okay, she's trying to build obviously proper vocal technique and things like that. But when I heard that, I thought, but why can't they sing the way they do at home in the classroom? Why do we have to tell that to our students and say, hey, you can't sing that way here. That doesn't belong in my classroom. So when we say things like, oh, everyone's welcome here. Oh, we teach the student. But then practically when we start creating these barriers of what are, let's say, for example, an ideal elementary um, choir program, are we really teaching the student if we're kind of you know saying oh yeah that style is welcome here oh but that style is not because that's not the sound i want that's just something i wanted to throw out there and i don't know if you've heard things like that or anything like that <laughs> no i definitely i have it's now hard though because i've listened to a lot of podcasts the past 10 days and feel like they're all just conflating on one they're another all like so one i can't mush. recall who said this <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> my NPR, my education, my gaming podcast, they're all just one thing. Um, anywho, but I'm with you there because we have this. I think I think it was your podcast. I don't know. Anyways. But, it ends up being um, us. Yeah. When <laughs> people. So <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like people have a notion of what is kosher for music education and the rest of the world is the rest of the world. But I don't know. I feel like we create these lines, be it in music education, be it for like other things as well. But I don't see why they have to exist necessarily. Why does the child that sings the way they do at home have to be separate from the way we sing in this classroom? Um, I, there's an, I went to this workshop one time that uh, a teacher decided that we need to make sure that this, the songs that we sing are real. Like, not necessarily relevant because relevance, you know, a flashy word, but like pertains to the child. And so what that student, uh, that teacher did, she went out to the playground. She just sat down, listened to the kinds of uh, uh, hand games they play, listened to the kind of songs they sing. And then she brought that into the music educational classroom, uh, in the music education classroom space thing. Um, and so I thought that was perfect because why bother teaching kids a certain style when in six years, they're not going to be your student and you don't know if they're going to hold on to that. They're going to go back to the way of pop. Let's be real here. So why not just bring in the styles they have, start from where they're at and then build off from there. Exactly. I totally agree. And 
a lot of the excuse I hear is, eh, but I, not that people talk like this, but sometimes this is how I see it in my head. That is, that's just me. But anyways, I'll hear, oh my gosh, but I don't listen to this kind of music. And it's like, you just gave a perfect action step. Go, you know, instead of just hiding in your room during recess, just sit down and build the relationships with the kids. Get to know what they're listening to. I think people just automatically think, oh, but my style of music doesn't match or I don't know anything about that. But then, okay, then what do you do? You go out and be a learner too. Just like what we tell our students, we got to do the same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My uncle teaches photography over at Punahou, over in Hawaii. And when I, I went to him a lot when I first started teaching. And it's the first thing he told me, the teacher is the one that learns the most. The teacher is the one that learns the most. The, children, the students will learn. But if you decide that you're not going to learn, then you've failed as an educator. And so I feel like, I remember when I was writing my master's, um, one of the things that I read up was that after five years, teachers become complacent in the ways that they already teach. And that can't be. If we are going to be relevant to how students learn, then we need to constantly learn what they are, what they are into and then bring that into the fold of our classroom. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I feel like we could go on forever about deconstructing music philosophies well not music philosophies but but specifically music education philosophies and another part of music education is our identities too which i feel like at least in my undergrad wasn't really necessarily talked about a lot let alone even emphasized or amplified and i know in the past in our past conversations you mentioned you're part filipino german and japanese Correct. Yes. Okay. So just wondering, like, were there moments where you felt like your culture was represented or featured in your music education journey? I mean, like for me, I didn't really sing or do any music from the Philippines until I was in college and I chose it. That's the thing. I chose the music. (laughs) So I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us more, a little bit more if you've seen your culture represented in that way. Sadly to say, the answer is no. That's just the blunt of it. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, like I, I, I am a multicultural. I won't. I'm not gonna say hot mess, but like it's, I'm a hodgepodge. Uh, um, like, yeah, and German, Filipino, Japanese, Chinese, Hebrew, Spanish, French. Got a lot in me, and that's a lot of identities to wrestle with, and it's played a big role of who I am, but. To your question specifically, um, yes, German has been represented. I mean, of course, we got Mr. Bach here. Like, we got to bow down to him. You know, like, you know, we also have, like, Wagner. We have the greats of the, of the German front. French, sure, we have some as well. But beyond that, no. It's And that's been a very sad part of it. Um, and I think about... You're asking what moments that my, my culture is featured. I think about back in actually your first episode of season two you interviewed Alice Soy and she talked about um how when she, I think it was when she was learning piano like yeah you you like you learn different stuff but like most of it's like Eurocentric on occasion you might hear Sakura Sakura as, as East Asian piece even though that's not who she was she's uh, Sakura Sakura being Japanese same situation for me I'm going through band, band literature in uh, middle school playing a bunch of stuff you know hot cross buns you know Eurocentric classic. Um, and then we, uh, 
I eventually hit Sakura Sakura. Oh my goodness. Wait, this is for me. And there's like a little bit of a light that I kind of like lit up. I learned it. I ate it wholeheartedly. I then played it for my Obachan. She like loved it as well. But that was just one piece of like the entire book. We have, you know, Lee, we got French classics, German classics. But where are the East Asian classics? And that's just not there. And it was just assumed that just just how the way the world works. But that's not how it should be. And I, I think about also, I think it was 2019, we had uh, our ORF, um, uh, American ORF, wow, it's, my brain's Conference? not working right now. Uh, Conference, that's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. <laughs> I'm like, it sounds like a gathering of some sort. Uh, a conglomeration. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, conference. Thank you. Um, man, it's been that long, 2019. Um, and I went to a lot of great workshops there. Uh, I And there is an episode in Chaotic Harmony, which you should listen to, where we talk about it. But one of them is uh, Natasha. Uh, we, I'm, um, I have an, um, I go to Natasha Thurman, who is an amazing American-Korean um, ORF teacher is over in Texas. Uh, she was my level three recorder teacher, but she led a, conf- uh, a workshop on Korean-American music, which was really good. Um, and again, there's a lot of nuggets that came in that. Definitely do check that out on chaoticharmony.com. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but one of the second day morning uh, session, I went to Tiffany Berry. She is a Filipina-American over in the Bay Area. And um, she led a workshop on Philippine folk music. And from the beginning, I would just lit up like a kid. Like she started singing songs like Tong 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 Paki Tong. Yep, yep, there we go. Songs of the Sun. Go check out that book, guys. She published it less than a year ago. And there's a lot of great resources. If you're curious about Philippine folk music, get it. She's a great educator. And it's good for us to uh, to help support our educators. But... um, yeah, I just lit up. Like, everything that she taught, every single second was just fun. And again, she's a very vivacious teacher, and so I think that played as a role. But a big part of it, as you mentioned, Darlene, identity was a big part of it. And the fact that she actually touched a part of me, even though I am a man of multiple cultures, the Philippines, being my, my mom being a first-generation immigrant um, from the Philippines, just my heartstrings really were pulled there. And I think about all the kids that we teach. We don't just teach kids from Europe. <laughs> we don't just, te- I mean, if you do great, but like even then those kids will be wor- interacting with kids outside of that. They'll be going out of their walls. And it's important for us to make sure that uh, when I say that there's not been enough representation, we need to make sure that that ends with our generation, that we find literature that applies to students in our culture. I'm uh, sorry, students in our community, their culture, but also beyond our four walls of our school side. So we got to end with our generation with this not enoughness. Yes, absolutely. I agree. I mean, growing up, I think the first Mexican song per se that was introduced was La Cucaracha. (laughs) I'm like, really? The cockroach? Out of all (laughs) the richness in the Mexican and Latin culture, we're represented by a brown little animal. (laughs) And I can say that because I'm brown, but (laughs) the cockroach. Okay. All right. So, I mean, it's funny. I laugh now, but I feel like that does 
<laughs> affect who you are. You know what I mean? When you're young. And I know we've talked about this in previous episodes, how that does affect our identity that sometimes we're even ashamed of even being like for me, like I struggled a lot with who I was, my skin. And I didn't even, I couldn't even comprehend what it was, but until now it's just like, okay, like my, my culture wasn't embraced enough thinking about that now and me teaching at a, you know, predominantly Hispanic community in one of my elementary schools, like I try to find representations in songs that is not just the cockroach songs, you know what I mean? But uh, La Bikina is a popular uh, mariachi song. You guys have to hear it. It's so rich. It's so beautiful. The dancers come and, and dance and so forth. But with that being said, we know that representation, it's a buzzword that we hear a lot in music education space especially now everything that happened last year so how do you do representation in your classroom and why do you think that some educators have a hard time doing this asking the big questions asking the big questions <laughs> um you're right representation is a buzzword and i'm not a fan of that personally um i feel like buzzwords are things that come and go when Representation is important because identity is important and identity matters, as you guys have mentioned so much in your podcast. Um, it matters because it helps us maneuver through this world in a healthier way. Um, and the what, my, my favorite Disney film now is Moana. Um, and have you guys seen Moana? Yes? No? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. It just recently surpassed uh, The Lion King, which was mine for like a long time. But uh, something I like, I like a lot about Moana is how it deals with identity. Um, a while back, about 10 years ago, there was that Pixar film Brave uh, that was really big and such. But like, I did not like it personally. I'm glad it, it did. One thing it did great was that it did represent um, uh, female prot- protagonists. And that's good. But how it dealt with culture was very much that, oh, this ca- protagonist... Um, has a different view than the way that her parents uh, wanted. So she's going to pave a new path. And I felt that was, I felt kind of cheated. And then I watched Moana. I was like, this is the fulfillment of it. Like uh, Moana here, it, spoilers, guys, sorry. But um, Moana, the idea of it is she w- sees herself being going beyond her island. And it's not because she wants it. It's because it's actually the fulfillment of who her people are. This is who her people truly are. And I just... It, I love that, and like it, again, it goes to that whole element of healthy uh, healthiness. Nora, you mentioned that you felt like you weren't represented, um, and I I had a, I have a similar situation back in university. Um, I enjoyed my time at Point Loma, but I also recognized there were some damaging things there, uh, mainly because it was a predominantly white school, and I ended up being the token Asian. Um, and I created habits to maneuver around that, that I am still trying to deconstruct. But I think about my students. If um, I am to just go by the way of the status quo and teach only Eurocentric music, which is good music, don't get me wrong, but if I'm only to teach that, am I then creating unhealthy habits for my students who have different backgrounds as well? To, but to get to the, the heart of your question, how do I do it? Um, 
as of April 10th, 2021, I will be, I mean, I have an answer. I'm sure it will evolve uh, from here on. But like, as of now, literature is what I've been focusing on, giving students different literature. I ensure every year when I, uh, for my choir, I always make sure at least one song is of uh, a language of a different culture. And I remember an earlier podcast, Nora, you're, you're talking about how, correct me if I'm wrong, you had Vietnamese students and also... Uh, and you, they learned a Vietnamese song. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And you, yeah, uh, and so like uh, you, you were, you did something that I really admired: the fact that you told your students, "Hey, these students learned a song for your culture. Uh, for your culture, now it's time to do uh, to do likewise." And um, one of my students, like, she says, like, I don't like learning a songs of different cult- uh, songs of different languages, and I get it; it's tough. But in the same sense, I have a lot of students. Like, with my school so close to the Mexican border, we have a lot of English language learners. We have a lot of students um, of different cultures, but a lot of them of Latin uh, cultures. And like, um, and it's important for well, something I try to stress is that it's important for us to try to ensure that the songs we learn is not just English. But the world is bigger than just our English pocket. So literature, as I'm now, is my best way to instill um, representation. But I don't know if it's enough. I as I've been very angry this past year with just this with so many things that are happening from class issues to race issues. I was texting one of my friends, uh, Victoria Bowler. She's a great educator. She ch- she check her stuff out. Um, but I asked her, like, because I respect how she treats pedagogy, and I asked her, um, "Is literature enough?" Like, wh- like how like, I asked her, "How how do you go about it?" And she broke it down as like, in a very interesting way. Uh, traditionally, we uh, people think we teach music education. Uh, we should not bring the hard stuff into the music classroom because chord notes and half notes don't deal with race. They don't deal with class. That's been one mindset, but then another mindset is that students use chordons and half notes to evoke narratives in music that do deal with those stuff. So there's kind of those two camps. There should be more than that, but like, and so I'm not sure where how I'm. I'm not sure if literature is enough. I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so I'm try, still trying to deconstruct it. I guess. Yeah, I think literature is definitely a tool and is a starting point in that and I also think about the value of creating space for conversations um, and being intentional in how we frame specific questions to guide these conversations so um, yeah just like what Nora mentioned how oh you know performing like we're a music class we make music but I think if we really are teaching students and not music then we want to give space for children to also think about their Mm -hmm. music they're making and the why behind their making it and so i think about you know when we have worksheets or discussions like are the only questions we ask questions like (laughs) when is the difference between forte and piano or can you tell me the time signature of this and so a lot of our questions would be based on, you know, musical literacy, or do we have questions where we really engage into their own little music education philosophies 
What is their idea of what a true musician is? What is their, what do they think um, a music producer is? What are their opinions on the, on really understanding Western notation? Like, is it mandatory to be a successful pop artist? And getting into their brains and what they think about that. And I feel like those conversations may, you may not necessarily be, you know, rehearsing something musical, but it is still musical because it's making those connections to um, the other arts and to other things in life. And those are the things that our students will remember. I mean, yes, they will They will definitely remember when we torture them with hot cross buns over and over again, but I would much rather have them remember <laughs> the conversations of tying music to the world than torturing them over the correct fingering over B on the recorder. <laughs> so it's about thinking bigger picture in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, in the same sense, if you're using your right hand for your for your for quarter, then you just might as well just leave <laughs> left on top, right bottom. Anyways, bad joke aside, bad joke aside. Um, but you, I mean, sorry, you, there was a, this was a very compressed question, so I, I only addressed one half of it. Um, I know there's so much to like, it. <laughs> there's so much, I and mean, this is a. I feel like if we're gonna be honest, I hope that this is something. This is what our generation of music educators wrestle with. I feel like every generation wrestles with something. This is something that needs to be wrestled with, and I hope that we do. But you asked also, like, why do you think some educators have a hard time with this? And there is that. That's a multi-layered issue. Um, I think part of it is tradition. A big part of it is tradition. I mean, you know, music educa- public music education started with Lowell Mason in Boston in the 1800s, like, and it, it started in a very Eurocentric fashion. And that, that, that's, that's great, and that's how it was seeded through. But um, then as you have more teachers of color, like yourselves, me, Franklin, Alice, Lorelai Batislong, Brandy Pace, Zoe Kumagai, all these uh, teachers of different backgrounds come in then we start speaking a means of accountability. And that's hard. And because we start saying, wait, this song is actually racially problematic. The song you've been teaching has issues. Excuse me. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, uh, and I, we, one of the podcasts we had um, over at uh, <laughs> uh one of the podcasts we had was, ta- we talked with Amy Curtis Fitzner, who um, does great stuff. She has a website called um, o-, o Fortuna Orf. And she kind of lists songs that have problematic past. Her daughter is Chinese, and so it's been it's a, a point that's very important to her. Um, but she came on our podcast, and something that she talked about is that music educators often have three approaches when they're confronted with the fact that the music that they love has issues. Either they dig their heels deep and say, we're going to sing it anyways, we're going to do it anyways, so just suck it up, buttercup. Option two is that they change the words, which, sure, you could do that in the same sense. Like, the only time I've ever cussed on my podcast was to make a point because one of the songs I, I, I used to sing in my classroom was called Johnny on the Woodpile. That's not what the original words were. Johnny was replaced with the N-word. That's what it was about. And like, I always thought about, like, why is this song Johnny on the Woodpile, John the Fence, Johnny, I had a haircut for 15 cents. It was really making fun of a black boy. Dad, it's me on 
kinky hair and whatnot, just doesn't know how to live its life. It's like that's that was the mentality of it. And of course, when educators say, "Oh, we shouldn't sing this song anymore. Let's change it up. Let's add Johnny instead," because Johnny is like the go-to name for everything for some reason. I don't know. It's hard being a Jonathan, by the way, in education. Anywho, that offside. Um, but yeah. Johnny on the Woodpile, I have no, I'm no longer singing, despite the fact that it doesn't use racially problematic words. And, but yet that, if I was to have my black kids love that song, dance with that song, do games with that song, and learn later that that song was making fun of their people, I, that's just her, I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. And I, that's one reason I've decided I can't, I can't just deal with glossing over the words. The third option is that we choose different literature. Because we only, for me at least, I spend at maximum 40 minutes a week with my students. 40 minutes a week. I did the math once upon a time and I stated how much, how many minutes per year I have, which is small. Um, and there's only so much literature I can give to them. There's only so much literature I can give to them in a small pocket of time. So why bother staying with these piece, uh, pieces of literature that have problematic past when I can teach them other things. So why do educators do what they do? Tradition, I feel like. Uh, I think also about, like, I'm sorry, I'm speaking a lot here. <laughs> but um, I, I I think about songs like Zippity Doo Dah. Um, you know, people have a lovely association with it, but it's problematic. And so, like, but for the adult, it has strong sentimental feels. How do we deal? How do we reconcile that? That's I think why teachers have a hard time with representation. That and also there's just so much to learn <laughs> to be a good teacher. Like I think about just I, I don't know enough of my own culture. I don't know enough my, about my own cultures. Pluralize that. Um, it's a whole lifelong journey, and to ask an educator to be respectful for every single culture that exists in their classroom is tough. I'm gonna say that out there. It's tough. But that doesn't mean we can't be better. It's just tough. I agree. And people will say things like, oh, I don't have enough time. And it's like, you're making up excuses. If you have time to do this and this and this, you have time to be intentional in our efforts to make sure our students feel represented and a common thing i'll even hear is oh but i don't have asian students or i don't have blacks it's like okay but that's the other side of the coin is well not the other side of the coin but that's the other part of representation is so we don't continue reinforcing stereotypes continue continue having the term marginalized students why do we have that is because our society and our dominant culture has caused it to feel like that way so we're teaching the next generation of leaders and if we're tired of seeing you know these stereotypes on media or hearing these racist statements or just hearing more insensitive um comments and things like that it's it starts in the school it starts with the teachers and what we do in the classroom um so yeah that's why it's important it's more than just making sure kids have musical literacy we want to cultivate better humans for our future that's the big flowery answer but it's true <laughs> as you can probably tell we have been enjoying our conversation with john 
Stay tuned for part two of our chat, where we will discuss how music heals and how we can create safe spaces. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Coloring the Melody. If you liked what you just heard, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to connect, please feel free to email us at coloringthemelodypodcast at gmail.com or visit us on Instagram at coloringthemelodypodcast. This is Darlene. And this is Nora. And we challenge you to think about how you can color your your melody. melody.